the Media Society Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Media Society Podcast. I'm Paul Blanchard. As ever, we get the great and the good round the table to discuss current media matters. Under discussion this week, Loren Scott is the latest example of a high-profile public figure to take her own life unexpectedly. But how much does the public really need to know? The BBC has recently given a platform to the EDL, but where should producers draw the line between spirited debate and providing a platform for hate speech? And the future of curated content. Will new sharing platforms aimed at young people be able to evolve with their target audience? And is testing headlines in different groups ethical? And joining me is Patrick Smith, media editor of one of the UK's most popular websites, BuzzFeed. And Donald Steele, for 11 years chief spokesman of the BBC, now dividing his time between aviation, crisis PR and media training. Lorraine Scott is the latest example of a high-profile public figure to take her own life unexpectedly. The papers have published the details of her death and the family's reaction and their grief. But how much does the public really need to know in times like this? Donald, has the media coverage been too intrusive? I've not, I'm not aware that Mick Jagger has complained about uh, the intrusive nature of the, 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 the coverage. Maybe he has. But, I mean, he is such a global superstar that the notion that, you know, that this could be private for him is is a non-starter. And I think he would know that. The thing that really concerns me about the coverage of this and a number of other recent suicides which have been reported in the press is the continuing need the press seem to feel to report the method by which people commit suicide. And we know from all the research that that can stimulate vulnerable people to take their own life. And I don't know how many times we've got to say it. It's completely unnecessary for us to know uh, why, how someone took their own life, and they keep publishing it. It's a lurid detail that's completely unnecessary. But, you know, the most eminent people have warned us that this will cause other people to, to do it, and, uh, and we should stop it. Uh, so I think there are two issues here. One is, you know, to what extent does Mick Jagger deserve privacy? And I think he deserves some. I think the family of Lorraine deserve a lot uh, in these particular circumstances. But I think the second thing is the reporting of suicide, I think, needs to be done extremely circumspectly. Um, and newspapers often, and the media, have exceptional access to the details of, of what's happened, much more than the ordinary public. So they have the ability to perhaps be a little more discreet about it. And I'm I, I would like to ask them if they they would try to do that. Patrick, the Mail, the Star and the Mirror all published photos of Mick Jagger leaving a restaurant in Perth with, quote, the moment he heard Loren was dead. Do you think that was too intrusive? It may well have been. What you have to understand, I think, to, under, to understand this issue is is that the, the phrase, the moment when he found out this tragic news, is, is a little bit of a newspaper sleight of hand. Sub-editors do that. Editors do that to make it look more dramatic. It was a really dramatic picture. They, they'd got Mick Jagger looking quite distraught. It was obviously in a, in a bad way, but this is something newspapers do to make uh, an ordinary agency picture look a bit more exciting. So they say the actual moment when this happened, and it may not have been. In this case, it may have been, but it's just a, an, an aside. The way that newspapers treat this is they're, they're several steps removed from it. So the newspaper editor's not stood there in the street with a camera. In fact, they don't have any staff in Perth. The Daily Mail, I don't know. Maybe It'll be do. an agency, won't it? They didn't have, exactly. They didn't have a snapper there on the scene. It's come from an agency, paparazzi. The Daily Mail incidentally said they've never used paparazzi pictures after the After death Diana of died, yeah, famously, of course. By the way. <laughs> um, they also said they'd never take uh, paparazzi pictures of children, didn't they? Yeah, uh, yeah. And Suri Cruz is on there every day on the Mail Online. So the, 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 the guidelines to go on are the, are the Samaritans, the UK 
charity who have on their website really clear and succinct guidelines that say various things that a journalist should and shouldn't do in the reporting of suicide. And one, as Donald says, is not to report the method of the death and not to intrude into someone's grief. That's also part of the Press Complaints Commission Editor's Code. Um, That's right. I, it, it, the code says that inquiries must be made with sympathy and discretion and publication handled sensitively. When reporting suicide, care should be taken to avoid excessive detail about the method used. So you're right. Well, ex- exactly. And uh, one would hope that every media organisation would follow those rules to the letter. Having said that, I, I do agree with Donald that he is such a global celebrity. It is impossible for something so tragic to happen to him and it not become a public news story within... In, in this day and age, within minutes, within within hours of it happening. So, so, Donald, given that the press clearly have a right to report this, given that he's such a global star, do you still think they've crossed the line in re- in reporting not just the details but also the grief as well? I mean, clearly being photographed outside a restaurant, he, he probably didn't want that, did he? Well, what you want and what you have to get, of course, in, in, in journalism are two different things. I think, uh, you know, the newspapers have every right to publish a photograph of someone coming out of a restaurant in, in truth, the, the, the photograph, is, as Patrick says, was taken without the the, the the photographer didn't know that this is what had happened. But I, but I, I don't see that as especially intrusive. These are how these people live their lives. I mean, the issue with um, uh, global superstars, of course, is they have the, the the resources to make themselves as private as they wish. Um, perhaps not coming out of the restaurant, but thereafter, if you've got a lot of money, you can make sure that you're hidden hidden away. I think that some of the other times where where the reporting is 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 quite difficult is where there is a um, an inquest into a death, particularly a suicide, where the family are not celebrities, mm. and uh, that's extremely difficult. Mm. What I will say is my own experience of this uh, through the BBC of uh, speaking to to editors is I think on the whole I've spoken to many editors when editors realise that the families are finding it quite intrusive, it is finding it uh, upsetting, they do pay attention when when it's drawn to their attention. I think sometimes people are just frightened to lift the phone or drop them a line and say, you know, we, we feel very uncomfortable with this. My experience is that editors do back off, uh, they get their reporters to back off when uh, ordinary people are in, in, in this situation. It can be an extraordinarily difficult thing at an inquest uh, when you when the press are all there. It's very, very difficult for families. And that's what I'm more interested in in some ways than celebrities. I think celebrities have the resources to manage the media themselves, you know. Patrick, there's clearly a very difficult balance to strike, isn't there, on the part of the editors? They've got the commerciality of the situation that they want to provide content that their readers, their listeners, their viewers are interested in, and often they do want to have these kind of details, but on the other hand, they've got to respect the wishes of the family as well. Do you think that's a very difficult balance to strike? It is a difficult balance. I actually heard the uh, associate editor of the Daily Mail on the radio talking about this the other day, and his uh, defence of this was probably the most honest one you could give, which is we are a business. We report what people are interested in. And that's probably the most honest and succinct version of why the Daily Mail exists to do what it does. It's a very successful business. It makes uh, a ton of money. It's part of a much larger group that also makes a ton of money. And um, th- that's what they're there to do. I mean, you, it's, you may not like it, but unfortunately there's the, the British press does a lot of things that um, are morally reprehensible in some people's eyes. But, you know, I, I tend to think in balance, to take a slightly wider view, that the country's better for that uh, unruly press that, that kind of does what it wants. And do you find... 
as a kind of new media website, uh, you know, my wife reads The Eye and BuzzFeed. There's her two sources of news. You know, your your 50% of her news intake, as it were. Do you feel a special pressure on you to be to follow the PCC code in the same way that the normal traditional media do too? Well, I think to be responsible journalists is a really important thing. We, we have discussions about the ethics of whether to publish something and whether not to. You know, we report on people's lives. We report on people's private lives um, and celebrities average people in the street, you know, we, we, we're just like every other news organisation. We're having those debates all the time, particularly around privacy. I think in, a, in an online age, BuzzFeed's really of the social media age, of the smartphone age. People consume BuzzFeed uh, majoritively on smartphones and particularly through Facebook because we make content that's designed to be shared and enjoyed on Facebook by people's friends and families. Um, you know, we judge ourselves on being able to do that. Mm. Um, so... We do. I'm constantly showing your content, actually. Well, that's great. And, you know, that's, that's what we like to hear. But I think as part of that trust that we have with the reader, we have to make sure that people, when they come to the site, know that stuff, something's true and know that if we get it wrong, we correct it. And also that we've taken some kind of steps to be um, you know, responsible people. I would like to maybe just add a, a kind of word in defence of the Daily Mail because we you kind of tend we tend to sort of pick up on the mail in, in these kind of discussions because it's such a big newspaper. But... In my experience, you know, I think the Mail is a very responsible newspaper and, and I think actually in a lot of these cases, these stories are, are printed in a lot of the broadsheets and uh, somehow if you couch it in different language, they're really the same stories, yeah. uh, but the Mail gets hit. Um, mm. And so I would like to sort of say something a little bit in the Mail's defence. I think the Mail do think a lot about a lot of these stories. I don't think they just publish any... Anything. I think they have a lot of debates inside the newspaper. I don't think they're perfect. But I don't think that other papers that that have a slightly grander image are any, any different. They all publish roughly the same stories. It's a unique thing in British culture and society. It, it is, it, there's nothing like it, and there never will be nothing like it. And there'll never be an editor like Paul Dacre, who has such a controlling influence over Westminster, over Middle England. His ability to bring something up from the past and make it a current campaign. We saw that with Harriet Harman. With the paedophile information exchange, yes. Yeah, with Harriet Harman. And that story is old, old, old news. Yeah, they mailed it themselves five years earlier, didn't they? Absolutely. And, and the Telegraph, and, you know, it, it was news in the 80s when people knew about it as well. So, but Paul Dacre clearly wanted it to be on the news agenda, and there it was, you know. So, yeah, you have to respect what they do and the professionalism and the, you know, and the talent of what they do. So, to what extent do you think there's. There's any competition, if any, between the so-called traditional media brands, the BBC, the Telegraph, the Mail and so on, and then the, the startups like yourself, like BuzzFeed, because, as I say, my wife reads The Independent, The Eye, yeah. and BuzzFeed, and she yeah. trusts them both equally. So it, the, is there much advantage to being telegraph.co.uk or BuzzFeed? Because they're both just two websites, aren't they, in, in the uh, online world? Sure. I mean, the first thing to say is that we, we don't need somebody else to fail in order for BuzzFeed to be successful. It's not like there's a one-in-one-out policy in business. You know, competition's healthy and, and any any new entrant who's doing well, that's a good thing for the whole sector, hopefully. You can tell Donald is new media, can't you? Because in the old newspaper days, <laughs> you'd have to win and then your competition have to lose sure, as well. Sure. So, uh... But I think the whole, the whole concept of competition is different in, um, in a digital age because all the national newspapers used to send people down to King's Cross on a Saturday night in order to get the first editions of the Sunday papers and then get a taxi back to Canary Wharf or wherever and just type it out. Yeah, there was incredible competition between the features desk and the yeah, news yeah, desk, wasn't exactly. there? Yeah, exactly. Well, competition internally in com between different newspaper groups. The most bitter rivals were the News of the World and the Sun, or the Sunday Telegraph and the Telegraph, and, you know, to an extent, the Guardian and Observer. These were the big rivals. And I think 
in a digital age, that changes slightly. It's more collaborative. I think people are more likely to say, because we had a good story today and link to us and we will do the same. And I think there's more collaboration now. At least I'd like to think so. But that doesn't mean we don't want to be first to scoops and so on. They still matter as well. But uh, we're, do- don't, we're not unlocking people in rooms yet. No, indeed. I mean, Donald, do you think that that's one thing that the, the public don't realise about the BBC when you were there, that people think there's just one BBC and everyone gets along and actually there's fierce competition within the BBC brands, isn't there? For, I, I was for smiling stories. at you saying, you know, the, 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 the same title, um, you know, there's competition within it and that's undoubtedly true about the BBC and a number of years ago we kind of said oh well we should all work we should all try and work together and be nice to each other and we share stories did and that we, last, how many minutes well, did that no, last? We, we even made people sit down next to each other so we went all open plan and, and you know put all the programmes that should be talking, I'm not saying that there shouldn't be a bit of that but the truth is in the BBC is you know people watch and listen to the BBC because it's not just one homogenous lump with kind of one kind of editorial trail you know there are you know you've got Newsnight, which kind of you know doesn't really you know speak to the today program as very much i shouldn't really say that but they don't <laughs> i think it's and, no, no, no. you know and um they prefer not to be in the same office and i mean that's really healthy i think and it's really great for you know you get the whole different characters you're you're, you're striving to make the best possible program you can Sure, there are times where material's got to be shared. You know, mm. there's no, keeping something till the next day. That the days of that are pretty much over, mm. other than the special interview. Um, but but the truth of the matter is that, that, that in the BBC it's exactly like that. But hey, they're both staffed by a kind of person called a journalist, and journalists are very competitive, aren't they? Wherever you put them, they just can't help it, and that's why I think British media is so good and admired. Well, the BBC have been criticised recently for their documentary on female members of the English Defence League. There was a bit of a furore on Twitter where they're expressing their disappointment and a BBC spokesman said that the network had a responsibility to encourage debate, even if that makes people feel uncomfortable. So, Patrick, where do you think this goes in terms of the, the level? Is this giving a platform to people who ought not to have one? Well, this, this takes me back to my university days. I was a student at Leeds. Uh, the old no-platform policy. I believe there still is <laughs> a no-platform policy at Leeds University and uh, I think Leeds student newspaper paper was um, in, in big trouble for interviewing somebody that was that was in the BNP at the time so this is all very sort of uh, nostalgic for me it, it is hard for the BBC they're kind of damned uh, either way my take on it is that the BBC has a role to, to write and broadcast about the society we live in and that's something that's happening it can't ignore it it can't pretend it's not happening for the benefit of a no platform policy for example I don't think it's giving um, political weight or legitimacy to a political faction. You can't call them a party, per se, to just report on what, on what they're doing. On the flip side of that, just because they exist doesn't mean you have to give them a platform, if you see what I mean. So we had um, Nick Griffin on Question Time and, and the BBC said, well, he's here as an MEP and he's, you know, he's a legitimate public figure. To which I could say that the BBC is also justified in saying no to Nick Griffin because we just don't want him on. That's a legitimate editorial decision to make. The problem was it was almost surreal, that episode of Question Time, because it was like a meta-debate. The whole debate was about whether he ought to be on the programme and he yeah. was one of the people debating well, gets, that on that programme. <laughs> exactly. It gets you nowhere. It turns out to be a, a, a pointless show because you don't debate you know, the cuts to the welfare state or whatever it is that you're there to talk about. It just becomes... Uh, a never-ending dog eating its tail discussing the merits of democracy in the public sphere. 
You can't stop Nick Griffin from existing, but you don't have to invite him onto your show. But Donald, don't you think there is a balance to be struck? Because you know, in many, there are many politicians that advocate extreme views. To what extent should the BBC give them a platform? Yes, they're there to be challenged and to have a debate, but in another sense, you're giving them an opportunity to say their propaganda. I think <clears throat> what's clear about the BBC... I didn't see the BBC Three programme. I should probably make that clear. Um, I've read about it. This would be an undertaking the BBC would only bark upon with the most careful thought, discussion. It has got a tendency to hand-ring and agonise like nowhere else in the world, and I think that's a good thing. They will have thought very carefully about it. And for me, the issue is, you know, the people who were featured, are they part of a lawful organisation? And if they are, um, and if the views they express are lawful then I think, you know, there is a place on the BBC and other broadcasters for for that kind of view. Although many people find it abhorrent, there are also quite a lot of people who don't. And uh, one of the things about the EDL, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not defending the EDL, by the no, way, not, not for a second, but, um, you know, the, the, the issue for, uh, for this programme would be, are they on every other day? Nick Griffin's in that same category. He's an elected... You know, he has elected uh, members. The public have voted for them. It's a lawfully constituted party. I'll give you another example, which perhaps perhaps more extreme is um, from time to time on the BBC, it's thought very rarely, but it's occasionally thought appropriate to interview a convicted paedophile. Now, that's only done with, you know, an exceptional amount of discussion. In these circumstances... Um, they have to be very heavily and carefully challenged, as the public would expect. And the only justification for having them on is to increase public understanding of the crime. And it's very rarely done. It is done from time to time. But there you have something which is clearly unlawful, abhorrent to almost everybody in, Mm. in the world, versus this group of people who... You might think are misguided, but that's the opinions they hold. And I think the public should should know, should have a, do have a right to know what other people think, whether or not mm. they agree with them. So the issue here is, was it the right format uh, for them? In other words, and I, I'm not sure you could have subjected these uh, people to a, a kind of question time style uh, interrogation. I think the public can make up their own mind. And it's interesting from the discussion groups that followed this programme, that the public had a very... If, if, they, if they're representative, Patrick, I think they, they were very clear that they thought the views were abhorrent and they yes. thought that the, uh, the, the, they were not very well thought through. Yeah. I mean, Patrick, before we uh, started the recording of the podcast, we were chatting about the Harry Harmon furore in the paedophile yeah. information exchange. And I, I, I remember there was a clip shown recently on the BBC of an interview with them that took place in the 70s. And it's about a seven or eight minute interview. I forget who did it, but they were extremely and very well robustly challenged on their views. So I wonder whether you, you think that that was the right thing to do. Well, it's right to challenge their views. Um, it, whether it was right to interview them in the first place, well, I'm not sure this organisation should have existed. But, yes. uh, but we can't do much. No, but Donald's point, wider point, is there at that point they were a lawfully constituted organisation, and yeah. it's the BBC's business to hold them to account. Well, it is the BBC's. It's the BBC's job to report the world we live in, not the one that we wish we lived in. Here's what I'll say about the BBC and the left wing and the right wing thing: the BBC's in constant battle to try and show that it's not left wing biased. It's it, that, that it's stuffed by middle class liberal 
arts graduate. Who, As Andrew Mao once famously yes, said. exactly, who, 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 who generally support Labour more than the Tories, who genuinely believe that uh, a big welfare state is a good thing and believe that multiculturalism is a good thing, you know, and all those things that, for example, we were just discussing in the Daily Mail, which is sceptical about all those things. And actually, it, it tends to go too far in trying to make the point that it is actually neutral, unbiased, yes. by interviewing too many right-wing people because, you know, Nigel Farage is never off the, the screens or, or question time I or whatever it might be. I don't think that's true, though, Patrick. I, I really don't. I think that uh, if you examine the output across a day, that the, I mean, the complaint of the... Um, uh, I hate this term left-wing and right-wing because mm. I, I absolutely do not like it because it, it doesn't... It's, it's a kind of meaningless term. But in the context of this uh, argument, I think uh, the airwaves are, are absolutely packed with uh, people who you would regard as having liberal views. And, and I'd, I'm not sure there is a, a kind of conscious thing of, well, we must have someone a bit more right wing. I mm. think in this case, if you look at the, um, uh, the, 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 the these young, young people that, that kind of mm. supported the EDL, whether they were, uh, th- that was very well thought through or not, I think that they felt this is a very interesting topic. Here are some young people of the kind of age that BBC Three viewers were. They do hold these views that are that are not commonly heard. Mm. Why don't we just, you know, have a look at how they live their lives so that other young people can say this is what other people think? Young people are yeah. pretty sunlight is the best disinfectant. Sure, sure. I mean, um, it's, it's unfair to pick on Nigel Farage. I mean, he's polling yeah. at ten, twenty percent of the vote, so it's fair, fair enough to talk to him. So. He's quite entertaining. As <laughs> yeah, well, well that's that's also, he likes, likes a pint of beer true. and yes. uh, yeah, seems yeah, like yeah. a nice yes. guy, doesn't yeah. he? But I would yeah. not vote for him. They should get you back in as a spokesman, Donald, to say that. <laughs> well, there's a there's a job offer for you, Donald. Yes. I'm sure you can uh, decline that immediately. <laughs> Now, the future of curated content. The website Upworthy recently celebrated its second anniversary. The volume of monthly visitors currently rivals that of The Guardian. But as social media evolves and new trends in content sharing arise, how will this platform continue to connect with their target demographic? Patrick? Well, that's a problem for them, Paul. Really. <laughs> yeah, very clever response. <laughs> that's up to them. I mean, it's, it's something we're all trying to do is um, connect with our audience. You know, it's a, it's a digital content business. Um, I guess there are some. Are they? Are they? I suppose the argument is with them, though, that they're being slightly misleading, aren't they? That some of their articles have twenty-five different headlines, different yeah. hooks, and so on. Is that just a fad, or do you think uh... it's not misleading? It's 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 um it's a particular way of publishing. I mean, there's there's an element of what um, people call optimization of online content that's been going on for the last ten years, and, and particularly so in the, in the last five. So. All the main publishers do this. You know, BuzzFeed does this. We we test maybe one or two headlines to see what works. It's called A-B testing. So you, you push out one headline and then to a certain portion of readers, maybe a third of them or half of them or whatever, they see a different headline. And the one that gets clicked on more then becomes the winner, so to say. So you're, you're basically like... Focus, and does the algorithm focus do grouping. this automatically then? Does it yeah. decide after a certain period of time does, to go you, with you the most clicked on? You can do it manually or, or, or yeah, the, like you say, an algorithm does choose the most popular one. And Upworthy does that, but to a large extent, you know, to a really industrial scale extent. They so will. how many headlines would you test? Is it usually just one or two? For me, me personally, it's just one or two. The Daily Mail does this. The Daily Mail website's done this many years, you know, just, just to make sure that... And is it just randomly assigned, then, in terms of what does the cl- click-through, or is it in terms of a demographic? Do you try things, well, you not, know, that might not, pull not better for, with women for, or younger people or whatever? Not for us, because I think for, for us, like, the art of head, headline writing, we like to think is alive and well, and, and we spend a lot of time thinking about the, you know, the perfect one. It's, you know, it's, it's not like the old, you know, sub-editor's art is totally 
dead and buried in a digital age. We we really want to come up with a headline that people would click on. You know, sometimes they're silly. Sometimes they you know it can be sad. It can be a something that connects with you emotionally, or it can be a breaking news. This has just happened. There's loads of different ways of, of doing it. For us, it's all human driven. Um, with Upworthy, they claim to have come up with a um, process of being successful in creating content that does well on Facebook. So they've got a system of saying, if we put these words in this order, we will get lots of shares on Facebook. So it's not quite algorithmic. I think it's more of a framework is how I understand it. But as you say, they, they do create a ridiculous number of different possible headlines and they refer to their staff as creators, not as reporters. Or it's incredibly depressing, isn't it, that these sites <laughs> exist. Yeah. I mean, in the old days, you used to sort of say, let's have a great story, tell it well, have great writing, but bring stories to people that they'll want to read because they're so interesting. And now we're sort of, I mean, by yeah, the way, I yeah. think testing headlines and things is a great mm. thing, but, but this business of kind of right, you know, almost having a a kind of algorithm, as you put it, for it's just so depressing. And my colleague uh, John Morrison was a veteran news editor. Uh, he used to be the, he was the new editor of Newsnight that uh, brought Jeremy Paxman to the screen. He used to say in television news, he, he, he says to me that the truth is with television, nobody watches television. They have it on, but you have to kind of you know when you have the big main bulletins, mm. the family's not any longer sitting around the huddled around the television set. In a sense, radio's more intimate in that way. Radio's more intimate, yeah. and actually nobody listens to radio either. It's a secondary occupation. I'm not saying they don't listen, mm. but, you know, I they're know not intently. What it's brings, on in the background. What brings people atten the, uh, the, uh, attention to the screen in television is great writing. It's uh, something that you say that's terribly well written that makes people stop ironing, you know, stop cooking the tea and say, oh, I must watch this. This is there. And, you know, I think that one of the things I feel about uh, a, a lot of sites is that in the end, what, what um, uh, will bring people to a lot of sites, and I find this on Facebook when you write your, your own, in, a, in your own small world of posting, the stuff that you feel you've written quite well and it's been a good story gets more likes than mm. something that didn't take you very long. Mm. And it's kind of common sense isn't it and that, you know i'm that's what i'm looking for in all of uh, the sites i go to not that i go to hundreds but you know and i'm looking for value for my time for a great story that you that you think oh that's so interesting or appealing or but do you think donald that the digital age has kind of introduced an obsession with metrics i mean clearly newspapers used to track their own circulation but now we're drilling down into what individual headline works with individual stories is it not like news is just like any other commodity I understand why people want to do that because I mean every you can't manage what you can't measure. You know the essence of management is is, is measuring things. Of course you've got to do that. But if you're driving everything just by this will work that better than that and, and a sort of some kind of formula of words, I think less about the headlines because I agree with the great headline writing is a very difficult thing mm -hmm. to get right because that's the thing that makes you want to go on it. Once you trip into the story, to the content, as people say, but I call it, you know, the story, whether it's a picture or a story, it's how is it written in such a way as it's, it's terribly interesting. And one of the things that we face in the modern age is everybody thinks they're a writer. Well, they may be, but they're not mm. great writers. <laughs> and, um, you, you know, and, and there's, there's still a place for great writing. And I think even more so... We should be training children in this art, actually, and maybe they are uh, at school, but great writing and writing in this way is, is going to 
get them a job. Patrick, is it difficult to write for BuzzFeed given the, the kind of listicle? It's designed, yeah. the format's designed to be skim read, isn't it, and draw you in? That must be quite a challenge, actually. It is, and I will answer that. But just to go back one step, because this is one of my you know real pet hates or you know uh, obsessions. Uh, I was a reporter for uh, Press Gazette, the trade magazine, for some years. I read it um, all the time. Yeah, there you go. And um, Dominic's uh, doing a good job. Yep, absolutely. Back in the, in the days when it was a, a, a printed title, and uh, we ended up reporting the newspaper circulation figures every month, and the magazine ones, and the newspapers so i got to really get my head into those figures and one of the dirty secrets of the publishing era up until about this point is that all those figures i don't want to say made up but the the relationship between the main circulation figures and actual reality is not always a straight line which is why when you're about to board a plane there's a pallet load of papers exactly (laughs) yeah yeah it got to the stage where the evening standard was giving away more copies than it was actually selling which is why it made sense you know, there's, uh, the circulation managers know the dark arts of making the figures go up or down as however they want. And, the, and what, what no circulation manager knows is who read which story. And um, actually, when you get focus groups in, the editors tend to not like the answers and just ignore it anyway. But um, what we have now, if you fast forward, is that we know exactly what, what stuff's getting read. We know down to the last person which, which thing is getting read. So we know in real time how many people are on the site. We know where they came from. We know what device they're using. We know what site they've been from, what site they're going to from do you, us. Do you monitor the way that they interact with the article, how long they dwell on certain sections of it, etc.? Well, I mean, what, what's great about BuzzFeed is that the, the journalists tend to just get on with being journalists. The, but there are data people that are monitoring that all the time, yes, which is useful for in, in a commercial context because we understand our audience and their behaviour. But from my point of view, I just get on with uh, you know, writing stuff. But the, the obsession with metrics comes because we can, for the first time now in the last you know, decade, measure accurately. And what that means for uh, the advertising industry, a lot of which was done on trust, is, is uh, you know, huge. What's interesting, and I won't name them, but I have a colleague who works for a payday loans company that works online. They have a website, and uh, they they monitor the the behaviour of the way that people fill in the form. So one of the questions is, do you have a criminal record? And they really don't care whether the answer is yes or no. What they do care is how long you took to answer it, because they can measure the dwell time on all of the questions. And if you take proportionately more to answer that question than the others, that means you were at, at the very best considering lying on it. In which case, they reject yeah. you immediately. And if you think about it, whilst that's quite chilling in another way, from their point of view, it's incredibly clever. Yes, that's this. It's fascinating. What if the phone rang or your baby was crying? You're not going to get the loan. (laughs) 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 Must remember that next time I fill it in then. Absolutely. Gentlemen, thank you for coming on. Just before we close, this is the point where we uh, you have the opportunity to tell the listeners your Twitter handles and websites and everything so they can follow you. Patrick, should we start with yourself? Yeah, I'm on Twitter all the time. It's uh, PSmith. Twitter all the time? Well, I you am, connected 24-7? I am constantly on Twitter, yeah, it's a problem. Any time offline at all? Uh, I do. I check it every day. I do less at weekends, but uh, certainly during the week, yeah, I'm always on. So uh, come and say hello, PSmith. Are you like me when you go on Twitter? You do check Twitter, but the first thing you click is the app button to see who's at mentioning you, what's been saying. It's like the me yeah. button, isn't it? It's, yeah, it's terribly say, narcissistic, isn't it? I am it? guilty of that. But, I am too. But it is, it is one of the ways I see um, if people are sharing the stuff that I've been writing. Yes. So that's, uh, that's my official that's my line professional as well. excuse. Yeah, I'm professionally interested in myself as well. Yes. Do Don't you m- subscribe, Patrick, to one of these services that tells you who's unfollowed you? This oh, you no. know, I, I did that for about half an hour and I couldn't take it. Emotionally. I don't know. I don't know. I could face the emotional pain. I noticed I sort of lost. I've noticed no. I was losing a few and then gaining I've lost a few some. thousand followers over the last and year. Have you? And I, and I thought, is. oh, I wonder who they are. And you know, there are these 
services you can subscribe yeah. to, but I'm not sure I'm emotionally ready for the rejection. You should also find out how many of your followers are inactive or spam. Oh, which, fake, yeah, there's, a, there's a website, isn't he? 10 check. to 20% usually, Because yeah. you get a lot of spam bots that follow you and everything else. And I think back in the day, you'd welcome any follower with it was real, fake bots, no, I'm spammy, fa- I'm whatever, because it was, no, no one cares. About, um, uh, I could follow people back quite often. I have quite strict rules about who I will follow. If you're right about football, or cooking, I'm afraid you're not going to be followed by me, even if it's occasionally. That's probably why I've managed to hold on to you as a follower, yes, Donald, for all these um, years, because I'm not interested in it either. Well, I'm completely ruthless. The minute a football thing tweet comes, that's an unfollow. And I don't mean it personally. And if people tweet too so much boring. as well, yeah. Um, <laughs> so we need to ask you then what your Twitter handle actually is. I'm at London Donald. And was that because at Donald Steele was unavailable? Or? No, I don't. I think that when I was um, uh, working abroad such a lot, I thought be, people always kind of remembered the London, but it uh, turned out to be quite a memorable thing. So, um, that's interesting. So I use that now, and uh, uh, it's been quite quite good. I'm at Paul W R Blanchard because the the other Paul Blanchard beat me to it by oh. about three days, and uh, only has about sixty followers and tweets once a year, which is annoying. But anyway. Squatting on your name. And, of course, you can follow the Media Society at The Media Society. And please do visit our website, www.themediasociety.com, where you can find out how to join. It's just 60 quid a year. You get access to lots of events, knowledge, networking, the whole thing. It's, it's very much worth it. This has been the Media Society podcast. The associate producer was Michelle Schofield. I'm Paul Blanchard. Tune in next time. A Big Things Media Production. Big Things!